in what ways are you being crushed, ground down, squeezed, pressed, strained in your life? Because instead of seeing these as moments of suffering, what if, what if these are a process by which you are being sanctified and made new? So as I'm recording this, today is actually my son's fourth birthday. And he got really upset, actually, because when I saw him this morning, uh, I told him that I'd never seen him before. Hey, everyone. Welcome. Thanks for listening to episode 165 of the Man of Food for Thought podcast. If this is your first time joining us, please rate and review this podcast. And it's so great to have you with us. You can visit our website, manafoodforthought.com or manafft.com to check out all of our content. You can click the uh, subscribe button so you can get our weekly email psalm reflection straight in your inbox. And you can also click on the give button to become a sponsor or patron of this podcast for as little as $1 a month because it does cost money for it to be on the air. If you're a returning listener, it's great to have you back. And without further ado, let's get into our joy, junk, and Jesus. So my joy, uh, that was a dad joke at the beginning like we always start with. My son did not turn four today. He turned three yesterday as I am recording this. And so it was a joy to just celebrate him and see him get so excited over the little things that we got him. We got him a new bike um, and just some people really, um, you know, really remembered and, and reached out. And so we, a lot of our friends and family are, are traveling or out of town at the moment, but his godparents were able to come over um, last night. And so it was really, really great um, for just us to have a nice, small, little intimate time together and for him to just be his joyful, wonderful self. Um, so yeah, my junk. Um, oh, and another joy is I got to spend time with my guy friends. One of my middle schoolers that I originally started with in ministry in 2007 got married this past weekend in uh, in Lake Arrowhead. So I got to go back up to my old parish, play music there with uh, one of my old musician f- friends, and then see my guy friends, many of whom live up there, uh, and all the rest of us gathered together. But I didn't get home till really late that night, uh, two nights ago, and so I'm still recovering from that. And I walked into our studio today to record this, and there's people rewiring our facilities, and nobody uh, checked with us if they could come in this room, and they moved all of our film and lighting equipment around, which is so particularly set up that it now all has to be redone, and it is a huge bummer. So... Yeah, I'm real, real upset about that. Um, but my Jesus moment, um, I don't know. I've just had a lot of people affirming me. I've had two or three people in the past week um, tell me that I should be a deacon. Don't know if that'll ever happen. but um, And affirming just my ability to teach and my grasp of scripture. And um, yeah, it's just been, it's really beautiful to see people calling out the gifts that God has given you or to given, given other people. I just love to see that when it's clear someone has a God-given gift, uh, people calling that out and celebrating it because I don't think we celebrate each other enough. And so I've just been blessed to receive that um, from a lot of people this past week. So thank you uh, for those of you who have who've said that. So without further ado, let's get into our podcast content for this week. We're always, as always, looking at the second reading for this upcoming Sunday. This upcoming Sunday is the Solemnity of the Body and Blood of Christ, also known as Corpus Christi Sunday. So every year, you know, we have Easter, which is based on the lunar cycle, and then we have, you know, 50 days of Easter, then we have Pentecost Sunday, the following Sunday is always Holy Trinity Sunday, and the following Sunday after that is always Corpus Christi Sunday, so that's this coming Sunday. And our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 to 17, uh, and it is a 
uh, a description of our participation in the Eucharist. And what's interesting about this is many people think that 1 Corinthians might have been written um, even before some of the Gospels were written. And so this might be one of the earliest places where we have mention of, um, you know, the, the words of the Eucharistic liturgy, um, very first time written down by, by St. Paul. I th- believe it's referenced again in 1 Corinthians 12, um, or not 1 Corinthians 12, in, um, oh gosh, where is it? Um, oh, maybe this is the only place. Yeah, I think this is the only place. So, sorry, my memory is getting away from me. So anyways, without further ado, let's read the second reading for this upcoming Sunday. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, he writes, Brothers and sisters, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because the loaf of bread is one, we, though many, are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, what stands out to me in this, uh, apart from just the, the Eucharistic imagery, is this one particular word, participation, where he says, is, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And that word um, in Greek is koinonia, and it's where we get the word communion. And it has a, this tone of kind of mystical participation, mystical communion. And we see it again in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where it says, you know, what the early church looked like. It says they devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles, to the communal life, koinonia, to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. And that really is like a formula for the mass. I mean, we share the teachings of the apostles after reading scripture. It's done in community. We break bread and it's all steeped in prayer. That's the mass. And so, um, that word koinonia, it just strikes me because it's, you know, we live in a world that is very dedicated to worship of self, idolatry of the self, and, you know, presenting ourself into the world as this image or this icon or even this brand or influence that we want others to follow, subscribe, or even worship. We want that attention of others. And what's interesting, this passage that we have, um, it's surrounded by warnings against idolatry. It's contrasting idolatry with what we should be worshiping, which is Jesus in the Eucharist, and that breaking of the bread is a participation in that. So right before this passage, in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, avoid idolatry. He's warning them about this sin of idolatry. And then he says, like, look, we're participating in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break. Like, we're participating in the body of Christ. Like, how could you worship anything else? And then he goes on to say, Look at Israel according to the flesh. Are not those who eat sacrifices participants in the altar? So what am I saying? That meat sacrifice to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I mean that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to become participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and also the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and of the table of demons. So Paul is being very uh, stark here about idolatry and the problems with idolatry in in Corinth, which is a huge epicenter of pagan worship and secular society and, you know, um, prostitution and all of these lascivious lifestyles. This early church community is here dealing with all of that. And Paul is saying like, look, you can't, you can't have it both ways. You have to be part of the, you are participating in the communal life, the koinonia, with one another, and you cannot do that half-hearted. You cannot give 50%. You have to give your entire self 
and give up those things, even though they may be difficult. You know, I love how this Sunday, Corpus Christi Sunday, is a feast that reminds us about that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And that we're, we're meant to always remember that, always, you know, um, participate in that. But what I, it, what I love that it reminds me of is just the simple things that we have to use for the Eucharist. That we have simple elements of bread and wine. And, and what really is bread, but it is grains, single grains that are coming together and are crushed, ground into flour and baked Wine is similar. It's, it's several grapes with the skins being removed and being crushed and fermented, going through some kind of process. That's what the Eucharist is meant to do. It's meant to take us from being this single entity unto ourselves, to bring us together, and to strip away or crush out of us all that is idolatrous, all that is worldly. And is meant to draw us into community together, bake us, ferment us into something new into something holy and beautiful for the Lord, where he can be present, where he can substantially be present in us. And so the question, you know, that this presents for me is, you know, in what ways are you being crushed, ground down, squeezed, pressed, strained in your life? Because instead of seeing these as moments of suffering, what if, what if these are a process by which you are being sanctified and made new? What if God is baking or fermenting you into something new right now so he can live more fully present in you and you can bring his grace and blessing to others? Just like the Eucharist, the bread and the wine is crushed, baked, fermented into something new so that God can be present and bless others. So when you look at the Eucharist, we know that's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. But who else is there? Mystically, we are the mystical body of Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, now you are Christ's body and individually parts of it. And in Romans 12, for as in one body we have many parts and all the parts do not have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually parts of one another. So when we celebrate the Eucharist and we receive the Eucharist, we're receiving the body of Christ, all of us. We're receiving community, koinonia. We're receiving this role, this participation that we've been given, and we're, we're being invited to be drawn deeper into that experience. Mystically, we are receiving one another and giving of ourselves to one another as community when we come together for the Eucharist. And so I love thinking about this because it also reminds me of just like how universal our church is and our brothers and sisters in the world all across you know, Christianity, but also in the Catholic world that we have this, this koinonia with despite doing things differently. And so you may not know this, but there are, uh, you know, an estimated 1.3 billion Catholics in the world. Most of those are Roman Catholic. They're the Latin Roman Rite at 1.295 billion. So there's about 18 million other Catholics that celebrate Mass differently. They have different cultural expressions of their faith. Theologically, we're all the same. We all believe theologically the same things, but we practice them in different ways. We use different symbols, icons, practices to convey those same theological truths. And so if you're listening to this, you're probably most familiar with the Latin rite. It's the largest and the only Western rite in the world. Um, and there's three different, actually, ways in which you can celebrate the Latin rite. 
There's the Tridentine Mass, which is the traditional Latin Mass, which you can still celebrate, even though Pope Francis has been uh, encouraging movement away from that, that no new communities or expressions of the Tridentine Mass develop. Um, you have the Novus Ordo, which is uh, the post-Vatican II Mass that we say in the vernacular language. So most of you, if you go to Mass, it's in English. You have any kind of worship, whether it's traditional or contemporary, that's probably a Novus Ordo Mass. And then there's a third version, which is the Anglican Use Mass, uh, or the proper name is the Ordinariate of the Chair of St. Peter. They have a sp particular way that they've retained certain traditions from their Anglican and Episcopalian roots, that when they convert to Catholicism, they kept some of those traditions, and so they can practice Mass in a particular way that's more aligned with their tradition. There were other uh, versions under the Roman Rite, um, from the date before the mid-1500s. Um, there's the Mozarabic Rite in Spain, the Ambrosian Rite in Italy, the Bregan Rite in Portugal, the Carthusian Rite. There's certain liturgies of the Dominican, Carmelite, and Carthusian orders that all fall under this. They have different versions of it. But generally, the Roman Rite is the largest and most often celebrated in the Novus Ordo, the vernacular mass. Uh, but there are, within all the rest of Catholicism, are we are united, our brothers and sisters, the mystical body of Christ, all, you know, coming together in community in different ways, and yet not all coming together to look exactly the same, that there is unity in diversity and diversity in the unity that we have in the body of Christ. And so there are five other families of rites within the Catholic Church. I think individually there's 20-something different rites, um, maybe closer to 30 at this point, but uh, they're kind of in five different families. So as I said, the largest is the, uh, the Roman Rite. The second largest is the Chaldean Rite, which is also known as the East Syrian Rite. Somewhere around 4.8 million Catholics um, are Chaldean Catholics. They trace their origins back to St. Thomas the Apostle. Uh, they sometimes call themselves St. Thomas Christians. And within this rite, there is the Chaldean Catholic Church. And the larger one, even though the Chaldean rite is kind of the name of the family, the larger one is the Syro-Malabar Church, uh, and that is the uh, rite that developed in India. There's 4.2 million uh, Catholics who are of Indian descent, who retain a lot of their Indian language and traditions in the way that they do Mass. And so uh, many of these groups from India, Iraq, other Middle Eastern countries have made their home here in North America, and we can see different expressions of that. Um, and they, they use a lot of rich symbolism. Um, they have a very expansive liturgical calendar. There's nine seasons in their liturgical calendar. Um, St. Thomas's uh, feast day is a holy day of obligation for them. So there's different expressions of the faith, uh, ways in which they do that. Um, so you have Roman, Chaldean, and the third largest is the Antiochian Rite, uh, or West Syrian Rite, uh, which traces its lineage back to Antioch. Uh, which was one of the original uh, centers. In fact, Scripture says it's the first place where people were called Christians. And they traced their foundation to St. Peter himself, who is traditionally believed to be the Bishop of Antioch before he went to be the Bishop of Rome. Um, and so they have certain traditions um, uh, as well. They use different symbolic gestures and language, very rich in symbolism. Uh, the three kind of rites within this are the Maronite Church. It's the largest, uh, 3.5 million Maronites, uh, roughly, uh, in the world. Syriac Catholic, uh, there's a little under 200,000 of these in the world. And the Syro-Malankar, not to be uh, confused with the Syro-Malabar in India, the Syro-Malankar, 
uh, church, which there's about 450,000 of them. And they all celebrate the exact same mass. The only difference is in language. So the Maronites are in Aramaic or in Arabic. Syriacs will celebrate in Aramaic or and Syriac. And the Syro-Melancar church um, can do Syriac, uh, Malayalam, Malayalam, sorry, um, or English. And uh, otherwise, they all celebrate the same. Okay, so Roman, Chaldean, Antiochian. And then fourth largest, let me scroll through my list here, is the Byzantine uh, group of rites. This one is a little more familiar for people. Uh, most people think of Eastern Catholicism. They think of the Byzantine tradition or traditions. Um, most of these were written by Saints John Chrysostom and Basil the Great, St. Basil the Great in like the fourth century, most of these liturgies. Uh, interesting thing about a lot of these traditions, they use leavened bread for the Eucharist instead of unleavened bread. So it's actually is more like regular bread. And they put small pieces of host into the chalice with the blood. And then when uh, people receive communion, they receive the body and blood of Christ on a small spoon. That's typically how that is done. Uh, and so there's a ton of different rites within this. The largest is the Melkite Greek rite. Uh, there's th about 3.5 million Byzantine Rite family Catholics, and about 1.5 million of them are Melkite. But here's all the different Catholic rites that fall under this Byzantine Rite. Albanian Catholic, Belarusian Catholic, the Bulgarian Greek Catholic Rite, the Byzantine Church of Croatia, Serbia, and Montenegro. There's also subsets of the Byzantine Church in Italy, the Byzantine Church in Kazakhstan and Central Asia. There's the Greek Byzantine Church, the Hungarian Greek Catholic Church, the Italo-Albanian Catholic Church, the Macedonian Church, the Malkite, as I said, Romanian, Russian, Ruthenian, Slovak, and Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. Now, this is not just countries where Catholics are present, but this is, is a particular rite of the Mass that's approved by the Vatican that's using a particular cultural expression and or cultural language from that region for those particular Catholics. So all of those kind of fall under the Byzantine family of rites. Um, so that's the fourth largest. The fifth largest is the Armenian rite. And the wedding I just played at for my former teen, his wife is an Armenian Catholic. Um, and Armenia, the only one that exists under this rite is the Armenian rite. They have their own rite because... It dates back to the 4th century because they were the first country to adopt Christianity as their state religion. So they've been celebrating Mass virtually the same way for like 1,600 years in their native language. Um, this liturgy was written by St. Gregory the Illuminator, and he first um, composed this liturgy in Syriac. Um, and they... Um, they don't have an excess... Uh, or no, sorry, they when they have an excess of bread at the Divine Liturgy... Um, they call it blessed bread, and it's given to people after as a sign of fellowship. Um, within the liturgical calendar, they have um, you know larger or different feasts, um, like the Feast of Advent begins on the Feast of Christ the King, and it lasts longer. Um, and so there's different liturgical you know expressions or calendar differences. Okay, so uh, we have the Roman Rite, the Chaldean Rite family the Antakian Rite family, the Byzantine Rite family, the Armenian Rite, and lastly, the Alexandrian Rite family. The um, Alexandrian Rite is often called the Coptic Rite or the Coptic Catholic Church. They trace their lineages back to St. Mark and Saints, um, St. Mark the Evangelist, and the Ethiopians within this Rite trace theirs to Saints Matthew and Bartholomew, 
who were believed to have spread uh, the faith in that area. So there's three groups in the Alexandrian Rite. There's the Coptic, the Eritrean Catholics, and the Ethiopian Catholics. Coptic Catholics celebrate liturgy in Arabic, and then Eritrean and Ethiopians celebrate in the language Ge'ez, or Je'ez. I don't know how to uh, pronounce that. Um, there's only about 425 Alexandrian Rite Christians in the world. They, they've been heavily persecuted, uh, and so their numbers have dropped significantly in the past like 10 or 20 years. Uh, but the largest subset of this is the Coptics. Um, and so um, their liturgical year does not um, begin with Advent. It begins in late September with the Feast of the Cross, uh, commemorating St. Helen's finding of the true cross. So again, another unique little liturgical thing. But all of these people exist all around the world. They're all Catholics. They all ha- uh, celebrate Mass. You could go to any of these Masses if you have a a Byzantine Catholic Church, a Melkite, Coptic, Chaldean, um, Armenian, Maronite, um, Syro-Malabar Church. We have all of those, I believe, in Orange County or near Orange County. Um, and, and I've been to several of them, and I know some people in those communities. And they're, they're wonderful, incredible people. They do excellent hospitality, and you experience Mass in a new way. Things will be a little unfamiliar if you're a Roman Rite Mass. Things will be a little out of order. But generally, there's a liturgy of the word, there's a presentation of gifts. Sometimes the gifts are presented first, and they're prepared, but not consecrated, and then the readings are done, and then the consecration happens and communion is given. Um, And so there's just different things that have historically been a different order that they retained in their cultural tradition that um, were changed or modified in the Latin rite that we all tend to um, celebrate. So all of these different expressions of one Eucharist like, that's what it means to be koinonia, to participate in the mystical body of Christ. It's like, I think it was James Joyce who said, Catholic means here comes everyone. And this is literally the expression of Catholicism out in the world, all these different ways in which people belong to the body of Christ, to the Catholic Church, and this big umbrella that is our spiritual family. And so I hope that was interesting to you. But um, if not, if you're like reeling from all of that and you had no idea, uh, just remember that first half of the podcast. <laughs> You know, and recognize like that imagery of bread and wine, crushed grains and crushed uh, grapes, and how God is is forming us in a process day in and day out that is to become something beautiful, something where He can dwell, people where He can dwell and bless others. And so, you are called to be Eucharistic. You are called to be simple ingredients, and that everything else is is stripped away. All the self idolatry, the self worship, the things that we worship and praise in this culture, all of that is to be stripped away so that God can make something new of us and dwell in us to bless others. And so how is he inviting you to do that? And how in your life right now are you feeling strained, stressed, um, you know, crushed? What if you were to see that as a process God is using for your sanctification and for the ability for you to better bless others, for him to better bless others through you? That is what it means to really enter in, I think, to the Feast of Corpus Christi this Sunday, is to recognize this isn't just a theological truth. This is also something we are being called to participate in, something beautiful. Think about it. The uh, Probably one of the most like uh, um, sensationalistically terrifying things in the Catholic world is, exor- is a possession, uh, demonic possession. And what that is, is the unwillful, Uh, or the uncooperative, like we're not inviting, the unwillful possession of a soul by the evil one or his enemies uh, for them to do their purposes and to take over your free will. What is the opposite of that but the Eucharist? The Eucharist is the willful invitation 
of the God of the universe into our very selves, not so that he will subject our free will or so that he will control us so that our will will become more aligned to his, but all of it while respecting our free choice. Isn't that a beautiful gift that you and I are being invited into every single week, every single day, if we so choose? That is the beauty of the Eucharist. It is truly Jesus. He is truly present. It is not just a symbol. He is there ready to encounter you, to promise to give his life for you, to receive you as you receive him and to lay down his life for you. Just as we walk down the aisle to receive him in the same way a bride walks down the aisle to be received by her groom, we lay down our complete lives for one another and strip ourselves of all idolatry, all worldliness, all things that might pull us away from this incredible relationship with God we're being invited into. You're being invited into that every single day, every single week, my brothers and sisters. And so I pray that that's, that has a, a deep meaning and gravity to you this week as you celebrate the Mass, as you hear these readings proclaimed, and the truth of the Eucharist spoken over you wherever you worship. God bless you. That is all I have for you this week. And until next time, we will see you in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm.